This is a Media Lab podcast. So Dave, in your opinion, what makes a good comedy? I have to laugh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But isn't that the hard thing? I find this too with comedies. Of I've seen like those lists from either like the American Film Institute mm. or like the British film or Sight and Sound when they release it every 10 years, like their list. And you'll see like, these are the top 10 funniest movies of all time. And sometimes I watch them and like, uh, like, I guess, like, I don't know, maybe it's like a different time. Comedy is so hard because sometimes what I find hilarious, this is true for YouTube videos and it's so awkward. It's like, look, look at this funny video. And then the friend like does not crack a smile. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I thought it was funny. So like, how do you judge that? I think comedy is so hard to judge in, in that capacity. Well, I mean, art in general is like that, but comedy, comedy specifically is very contextual. Now, particularly with, uh, now it's being vilified, I suppose, cancel culture, but our sensitivity keeps changing. So the concept of comedy is evolving right now. So when I was growing up, like slapstick or inane mm. or, you know, uh, silly comedies were just literally like finding a way to punch someone in the nuts, you know, right. was comic gold. And that's how everything was set up. I blame America's Funniest Home Videos for that, but. If you look in England, uh, we have wit and writing and sarcasm because they are the birth part of English. So you have Monty but Python. But also, so. yeah. And also something that is sometimes criticized nowadays is it is kind of weird how many British shows, movies, comedians uh, use dressing up as a woman oh, yeah. for comedic effect. It's like the, the, the joke is that I am a man dressing as a woman and there's really no other comment on it besides that anyways it's just different cultures have different comedic yeah. things well I, I just saw a trailer for a i think it's a swedish movie I, it's like a female dancer can't make it so she pretends to be a man pretending to be a woman to perform oh. at a drag show so it's victor victoria yeah but that's like, exactly modernized. what that is yeah and, you know he's just like i don't want to watch it because uh that's too many there's too many but apparently, you know, Man, somebody will find it. It'd be it. weird if we ever went through the year 1982 and then had to watch Victor Victoria. Huh. Well, a good huh. thing, you know, good thing we we're don't not. have a choice. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah, the machine. I'm sure the machine here. will bring us to a good year. Uh, do you have a favorite comedy? Like, do you, is there a comedy that you know. hold above any others that you come back to? Yeah, that's a hard one. It used to be that golden age of Will Ferrell movies, um, mm. but I don't watch them anymore. I, it's not, I don't, I'm, they may hold up, but that's just not in my realm. Hot Rod was one I watched probably 60 times, but I don't even know where I put that DVD anymore. So it's tough, you know? And I think too, with the streaming generation, I can't remember the last time I've watched, you know, the MCU and Fast and Furious during COVID, just because we have the, you know, access to them. But well, when is the last well, that, comedy I've watched more than I once? I mean, that is something that I was going to uh, bring up, is that like just the regular comedy is kind of a dying breed. Like. Yeah. It is very rare for any comedy film to crack like the top 10 uh, most box office of the year. That's not how you say that, but you know what I mean? <laughs> they don't make a lot of money. No. If they do, they'll sometimes get like thrown onto like a Netflix and stuff like that. And maybe you'll watch them. But yeah, we're more after that action. Action comedy is like really where like jokes come into but, like the crafted joke and situation doesn't seem to be driving audiences all that much anymore, which is why it kills me. Like you brought up Hot Rod and I'll say their follow-up pop star yeah. are two of my favorites from recent years. And nobody went and saw those. Nobody went and saw those movies, uh, which is too bad. When I was growing up though, 
I was influenced by my parents. So I was watching like all the Monty Python stuff, all the yes. Mel Brooks stuff. Yes. And so for me, I still go back to those. I don't think every Mel Brooks movie holds up anymore. No, Spaceballs is terrible. Yeah. I, I tried uh, to watch that recently. Man in Tights, I also don't think holds up all that yeah. well. But his two big ones, which I came out in the same year, which also blows my mind, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, are two of my favorite comedies still. I think there's smart comedy writing in there, and they're actually giving a, a specific point that they're that they're going after holy grail and life of brian i can still go back to and watch too and there's still bits that i like even though the filmmaking isn't like great That's in those movies anymore but i tried to watch holy grail two years ago and i found it a bit tepid um mm. some of the moments are still they're you know yeah. uh, transcendent but yeah maybe it's just the way they're shot i mean it's, what is that mm. 1970 something it's hard to get through in some yeah. parts. Um, well, and that's the hard thing about comedy too. And, and I'm not the first person to bring this up, but I mean, I remember gasping with laughter when Jim Carrey came on the scene yes. with Ace Ventura and The Mask. And I go back and watch Ace Ventura and like, this is not good. <laughs> like, this is not good at all. Liar Liar uh, still holds up pretty yeah. well. There's some, uh, there's some other ones, but those yeah. first couple of like, ooh, like, it, yeah. it just doesn't work uh, anymore. Oh, I will say just as two recommendations for people, and then maybe this is just more of my, again, comedy stylings. I love Game Night. I think Game Night is Amazing. a great comedy film. Fine. And That's a good one. one of the All few, is dark. Yeah. It's dark, but also one of the few comedies in recent years where a married couple actually likes each other, which I found <laughs> very refreshing, where it's not them just yelling at yeah. each other and seemingly hating one another. Yeah. The other big one, and this is this is a very divisive film in film Twitter currently because it, this is falling in either you love it or you hate it with a fiery passion. Barb and star go to Vista Del Mar. Oh, I haven't seen that yet. It's the, it's the new one with Kristen, Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo, Annie Mumolo who did uh, bridesmaids. It is so up my alley. <laughs> it's like it was written directly for me because it's weird and bonkers and it do, isn't afraid to go like swing big. Uh, but it all works for me and I won't spoil it completely, but uh, there's a very, there's a great guest appearance as a mermaid in that movie <laughs> at the very end. They was like, yes, we pulled it off. Uh, anyways, most people probably won't like that movie, but I, but I loved it. You just put on record. I liked Bridesmaids a lot. We used to watch mm -hmm. that almost weekly. And then uh, Paul Feig made Ghostbusters and I decided probably won't watch anymore. Yeah. Movies cause you hate women. Anymore. You hate women, Dave. That so. movie was just terrible. It's not good. No, uh, yeah. I agree with that. On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Well, uh, where are we? Oh yeah, we this, we have a podcast. We're in a we're not oh, we're, yeah, we're, we're just a, talking now. We're in a spaceship. There's a spaceship and backstory. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle, and my name is uh, Dave. It and I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse, and then another apocalypse happened. 
Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space, so now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film A New Leaf. He drove like a demon. He flew like a hawk. water he was a master too he was in fact the ultimate playboy and then one day Harold I should like to ask you something certainly sir you've been with me for many years now Harold what would you do if I told you I had lost all my money I should leave immediately sir upon giving the proper notice So a big thank you, of course, to our patrons, Green Girl, YYC, and It's a Conspiracy Podcast. Dave, I think this is a really great evolution of our conversation Mm. from last week, right? Last week was about Carnal Knowledge, directed by Mike Nichols. This week, we're talking about a movie directed by Elaine May. They were the comedy duo. So if you want to go into way more backstory than what we're going to do again here today, go and listen to that episode first, because we do cover a lot of that. I want to know your background with Elaine May. Did you actually watch those videos that I sent to you last week? Yes. So I want to talk about those specifically. Um, Tell me about those or anything else that you have a relationship with Elaine May with. Uh, I have no relationship with Elaine May. That golden era of of, uh, Nickel and May is way before my emergence as a human being. So Maybe even before your parents? No. No. Yeah, my parents 40, well, around that age, my parents were born in, no, around, uh, they're around the same age, 46 and 49. So we old. (laughs) You are. So I have nothing. I I don't know who they are. And when we talked about it last week, all these famous comedians that we do know, referencing uh, referencing them, that's big, but I don't really read quotes from comedians. I just want them to make, <laughs> to me, make laugh. me laugh. Yeah. Uh, so I watched those clips and I understand in one sense why people thought they're so revolutionary and they certainly have a great chemistry together. And I think mm-hmm. that they were doing things like the Oscar speech, et cetera, that it was the Oscars. Emmys, but Emmys. Sorry, I just offended you. You know, people still try to emulate that to this day. Um, so that's, that's something. Sure, it's something, but is it anything? I really do think you could draw a line from them, of course, their impact on improv comedy, but then also into the comedy of today of an Andy Sandberg and stuff like that, like the looseness, the improv like nature of it, like all of that kind of started with them. And so you can kind of see that progression through the, like the last 50 plus years. Yeah, they do some great surreal bits. They're uh, quite clearly intelligent they do some play on words there are cultural references that i don't understand so there are some moments yeah. like in the uh the teenagers in the car and the other one where sometimes the audience starts cackling and i'm like i don't i don't even I know don't what he said is. i don't yeah, yeah i don't even know if that's english but and this is kind of what we brought in that very very long intro you know sometimes comedy can't age well because they are uh, satirizing or making fun of something that's even year sure. to year might not even be funny the next year yeah. so literally go and watch any weekend update from the yeah. 80s from Saturday yeah. Night Live. Like, I don't know who any of these senators are. A year you're ago, about. sometimes, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, when they're making Trump jokes, they don't age that well anymore because we lose sight of which senator said what. Well, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, I think they have great chemistry and I can see how they read off each other. I think Elaine May is uh, fascinating to watch when she's young. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's great. She's got great energy. 
particularly in the uh, making out in the car scene. They're hilarious. Um, yeah, that is probably their best known one. And I think the best one of the three that I sent to you. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the only time I've uh, seen them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. And I, this is the thing. I think I, and again, this is my opinion, which it sounds like Dave, you're, you're not agreeing with is I find that most of their stuff could be transplanted to, the, to today, maybe change some of the references here and there, but the actual situation and the way that they're reacting to one another would still kill today. I think that honestly, you could still do that skit on Saturday Night Live and people would still laugh. Uh, I don't know. I, you know, my only pushback is not to diminish what they are capable of doing, but that so many people, and we talk about this now in 71 so much, mm-hmm. it's become a trope. People actually do do these things every day. I mean, you brought up Sandberg, but Saturday Night Live is, you know, and you talk about how their, what was their company's name that became Second City, which essentially became Saturday Night Live. Like, yeah. it, they're just redoing this in more and more twisted and modern ways sure. and evolved if you want to evaluate it. Whether it's better or worse, who knows? So if they built a time machine, came forward, rebuilt that set in, in, in essence and played the same joke, I don't know. I think it might come out a bit dry. And I, I don't mean that as a, a criticism of them, but I do think you're being nostalgic in the sense that the context of it is valuable to you. But I think the performative I, aspect is, I don't know. Well, you say nostalgic, but I only watched those for the first time, like maybe a year and a half ago. Well, I think you're so. nostalgic about history. Well, you, know, but- <laughs> you know, you like, you like the like concept, right? Yeah, you, you I like do. The, I do like that. You love the idea of history. You know, it's, you, you give it a lot of value, whereas... Uh, I call no, I it herstory, Dave. <laughs> so uh, there's two things I want to say. One thing I I did not mention last week is this uh, passage that's in the Mike Nichols biography talking about uh, May, uh, Nichols and May and them exploring like what was working, them exploring like what was working with audiences, what they found interesting to do. There is one of their skits that they never allowed to be filmed um, and they never wanted to film it. And I want so badly to have been in an audience to see this i describe because it? okay the way that they describe it because again it's playing with form and playing with audience expectations and again i bring this up all the time probably why i like the concept of andy kaufman and why i love pro wrestling is when they mix reality with fake and then sometimes you can't tell which is which of what's going on they would start a scene of a married couple who are fighting and there was jokes going back and forth and then at a certain point, they quote unquote broke character and started being the actor and actress having an argument on stage, which would escalate with him hitting her and her storming out. And people would like get up out of the eyes and be like, hey, dude, like calm down. But it was all written, rehearsed. I love that stuff. I just love the concept of that stuff, of playing with people's emotions, expectations, because so few things nowadays Maybe, maybe easier back then, but so few things nowadays, are you going in really and being like surprised? And I think Elaine May was much more interested in that kind of stuff of just keep pushing boundaries, pushing boundaries. The other thing about Elaine May, uh, and I've discovered this, there was this podcast that's much more popular than ours called Blank Check. And the, the whole concept of their podcast is they go through filmmakers, filmographies, mm. so they can see trends. Um, and blank check is in like there's a time and most directors that have made lots of movies where they make something that hits big and they're given a blank check to do whatever they want. And they, you just have to see how long that lasts for before it's like, no, you can't make the stuff that you want to make anymore. Elaine's Elaine May's career as a director was very short. She made four movies, three in the 70s, one in the late 80s. 
And it's, and they did a, a short miniseries on her just this past April. And so I learned a lot more about her and her backstory and stuff like that. And what I found fascinating is I think you and her, we get along so well in real life. And why I say that is that she does not give a shit about fame. <laughs> she does it because she likes to do it. But it, but if someone offered her this thing for like, you'd make $5 million. If you came and directed this thing, it's like, I don't care. I don't want to do that. <laughs> she hates like pomp and circumstance to the point of like, if you watch any appearance she's done in the last 20 years, there's like a Mike Nichols like celebration that AFI did. I think it was even at the Tony Awards when she got won her Tony for acting here just a couple years ago. Uh, anytime she's come to present, she wears the same dress. She's, she bought one dress 25 years ago. It's like, I'm not going to buy something new for you. I don't care about you. And so that has both helped and hindered her throughout her career because she just does not care. So I've seen a new leaf before and not to put the cart before the horse here. I'm just going to be on record. It's maybe my least favorite of the four that she did, okay. even though I still enjoyed it. Her next one, Heartbreak Kid, the Heartbreak Kid that stars Charles Grodin and Sybil Shepherd, is phenomenal. Like, I think it is so good. It's free on YouTube that anyone can go and watch because it has no DVD release, no Blu-ray release, and has never been streaming anywhere. Oh, wow. The, the rights issues for her movies are all over the place because she normally sued the company because she didn't like what they were doing <laughs> with, with her work. <laughs> I it, would almost, like her. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Every single one of them, they tried to take her project away from her. And she's like, well, fine, I'm going to sue you. Then there's Mike and uh, Mikey and Nikki, which is a, not a comedy at all. Like not at all. It's a drama about like a hitman and his best friend and both realizing that they uh, aren't good for each other anymore mm. as friends. And then, of course, the f most famous movie that she probably directed because it came a punchline for so long was Ishtar. And I'm here to tell you, Ishtar is not as bad as what people make it out to be. It's not great either. I'm not going to I'm not that bold as to say that. But the first 20 minutes of that movie is probably my, one of my favorite comedies of all time. Mm. I think it's brilliant. So anyways, there's, there's been this kind of reevaluation of Elaine May over the last few years. She even might be making another movie, like a fifth yeah, directorial that. movie. Uh, I'll believe that when... It's actually shooting, but be that as it may, there's rumors that that could be happening. And I think it's because of the Mike Nichols biography and because of a few other things, uh, maybe partly due to her Tony win, that uh, that she's becoming a little bit more popular now and people are reevaluating these movies, uh, which I think is good. I think that she should have been able to make more movies. I would have loved to have seen a career like Mike Nichols for her at the same time. And really, she only has the four because people fought with her the entire time so I'm, I'm excited to jump into this and talk about it with you dave because i'm sure it's not going to be contentious how could it be contentious <laughs> we'll be getting along this, so well in this light comedy from 1971 <laughs> <laughs> all right well anything i know i just talked for like five minutes i don't know if there's anything you want to say about that uh I don't, I don't know because i don't have any grounding in elaine may's uh, life other than a brief wikipedia education i gave myself having watched this movie it's clear that she's and the clips you sent me it's clear that she's intelligent in the sense that uh, i mean she's also a very beautiful woman but mm -hmm. she is not the type of person that wanted any of those to be her defining characteristic right. Yeah. So you can she tell. She intentionally made herself ugly and other stuff in things that she took. Cause she's like, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in that. So you could tell that just the way that she handles herself, the, what she writes and the projects she's involved in, um, you know, she's just a mind. So, w which is great, which I like. That was the other thing I was just going to bring up is that what I found in the four movies that she directed 
and many of the things that she helped to write or co-write or ghostwrite, she seems to be fascinated by toxic men. Mm -hmm. Then she really would have loved Dave. Like that is like her big thing she comes to returns to. All four of the movies she directed are really at the end of the day about toxic men who can't get out of their own way or they're spoiled or whatever it happens to be. And she likes to delve into that. And maybe that's because she was surrounded by them. I don't know. That's me projecting a little bit, but. Well, there's a brief anecdote, uh, not anecdote, a note in the Wikipedia stuff, which I, I don't dig too deep. But apparently yeah. when she was uh, coming up, she had a pretty uh, crazy life growing up. She had a kid when she was like 17. Yeah. Who actually is in her second movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she, the she's the main thing, love interest. Yeah. Which is the interesting thing that I couldn't really find out is she has the kid when she's young, but then she decides to go to Chicago to become an yeah. actress like two years later. Where yes. was the kid at that time? Anyways, so the note is that when she's young, again, she's very attractive and she's intelligent. She's uh, becoming famous in this improv troupe. And they say that every guy that was in there was trying to get into her pants. And like yeah. a lot of people, even if they'd start a relationship, couldn't handle her. So it's right. not surprising that the form, because she's quite young at that time, you know, maybe in her early 20s that uh, she's going to be surrounded by a lot of pigs in a patriarchal society. You've already explained to us that women weren't even allowed to have their own checking accounts, et cetera. So right. um, I think I think it's not that surprising. And, um, you know, maybe in, a, in the worst way possible, you could say that for the era, she was too smart for her own good. You, you kind yeah. of bring up this idea, what if she had had a Mike Nichols life? I don't think that was possible for her. She would have destroyed me. One of the hosts of that Blank Check podcast, Griffin Newman, is an actor himself. So he's appeared on a bunch of TV shows and, and films and stuff like that. And I realize it's just one person's anecdote, so I can't say this is a trend necessarily. But he said from his point of view, what is fascinating to watch on a set is that if it is a female director how much pushback she still gets mm. in today's day and age, right? It's like, move this light there, put that there. It's like, oh, they, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Where that is never really done for male directors. So I can't even imagine what it was like in 1971. Well, I, I wrote too, you know, Mike, most of the male directors we see this, if they bomb, they get two or three more chances yes. the next year to build the next thing. She made one bad movie and she got blacked out for 10 years. Correct. So. Correct. Um, and that tells you a lot. But uh, did I bring up last week about chess players? Did I tell you about male and female chess players? No, I don't want to no. repeat an anecdote. So I'm trying to teach myself how to play chess. I'm miserable at it. Uh, but one of the things I've noticed, which is uh, sort of a public fact, is that there are very, very few female chess grandmasters. And of hmm. all quote unquote sports, you would think that there shouldn't be a gender bias because Chess is ultimately a game of memorization tactics and, and, you know, it's pure thinking patterns. The ultra nerds have their own way of thinking and processing that information. So uh, I was reading about it when they did a blind sociological test where the women and the men didn't know who they were playing, the, there was a bit of a parody. So for the most part, yeah. you just get a 50% split because they're playing tactics. What was interesting apparently is that as soon as the women knew they were playing, it wasn't the other way. It wasn't like when the men played the women, they were bullying. It was that there's a self-informative problem where the as soon mm -hmm. as the female players knew they were playing against men and were had to present themselves in front, they noticed a, a statistical decline in their tactics. And so the current problem uh, to this one study is that it's self-informing. 
And I don't know what that means in any uh, place, but it is frightening to think about how hard it is sociologically, not only to educate men, but to get women to get out of that shell that right. they think that they, I don't know, deserve it or that they're already on a lower playing field. It's, it's really crazy. Now I'm suddenly thinking of all the women that support MAGA and all this fucking chauvinistic shit and conservative politics. I'm going to go off the rails here, but it is frightening, you know, yeah. how we can delude ourselves into believing that we're worse than we are. Well, luckily we are here to talk about a new leaf, the uh, <laughs> breezy comedy. I'm from just looking at the time. We are like five minutes. We'll wrap this up and then we'll right, get right. the fuck out of here. Yeah. Uh, let's see this. Uh, let's go thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about a new leaf. You know, Dave, I, I don't know why this just suddenly popped into my head, but I do have this urge to like throw you into a waterfall and just watch from the side of the river. Is that weird? No, actually, I hear that a lot from people that are close <laughs> to me. Yeah. Maybe that's a you problem, Dave. If, no, it's clearly if everybody else. Multiple times. No, the way I look at it is that I'm doing everything right and you're all wrong. It's a very healthy way to look at things. That's why I have so many friends. You know, I should start off by saying that Kyle and Dave versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Uh, Dave, do you know about the Calgary Foundation? No, is it, uh, do they install basements? They're actually like a local utilities provider in Alberta, weirdly huh. enough. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's odd. Wait, no, that's not right. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Calgary Foundation, and it's proudly supporting community needs for the last 65 years. So get this. When you make a gift, a donation to the Calgary Foundation, it is a gift that keeps on giving. Dave, how many times can you actually say that in this world? Six. Yeah, I, did, I, I have given a bunch of people tapeworms, so that is... That is a thing. The foundation's knowledgeable staff will provide advice on the community's most pressing needs, keeping your interests at heart and helping you give back in a way that is meaningful for you. Your contributions are invested in an endowment fund that provides a permanent source of funding, allowing you to make an impact now and forever. I realize that because there's two of us, it makes it sound like I'm talking to you specifically, Dave, but this is the royal you. Sell it. Sell it to me. I'm, I'm ready. I'm leaning in. Right. I'm leaning in. All right, Dave. If you're a professional advisor creating a giving plan for a client or a donor wanting to give back to the community, things. discover a wealth of resources at calgaryfoundation.org to learn more or check out Calgary Foundation's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube channel. A lot of stuff. Yeah. A lot of things. Clicking. Yeah, insert audio of swiping the screen of my mm -hmm. phone. I get to read this next ad read. All right, that's pretty smooth. Yeah, nice segue. <laughs> I thought we were just talking about our favorite uh, favorite local companies. Oh yeah, that well, if that do great things. If but. you're going to talk about yours, I've got to show you yeah. mine. Uh, so oh, okay. Uh, I think you went to jail for that once. This Dave. message is from Park Power. They're a friendly, wait, no, this is not the one you read. They're a friendly nope. local utilities provider here in Alberta. They actually offer internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. There's a charity theme. There's like a line. There is. Yeah, we Albertans, we care. 
In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Park Power has a low overhead, which in turn allows them to offer low competitive rates. Reach out for a no-obligations comparison by emailing estimates at parkpower.ca. If you decide to switch, it's easy. It's really just a change to your billing, and you can feel good knowing you are helping to give back to our communities with your utilities bill. I'm running out of air. That's, that's new for you. Zing. And you can feel good knowing you're helping to give back to your communities with your utility bills. Utilities bills. Utilities bills. Can you use one of those? Utilities it, it's, bills. It's like, it's like attorneys general, right? <laughs> that, that's how you have to pluralize that. Learn more at parkpower.ca. All right, Dave, we've watched the movie. I did see you grimacing your face next to me, so... <laughs> I'm girding myself. Uh, tell me about your thoughts on A New Leaf. Yeah, this is a terrible movie. Um, <laughs> All right. And I think what I mean by terrible is that it's hard to watch and not rewarding in its capacity to give me entertainment. I will concede this as wow. we were talking about- <laughs> that's, a, that's a very <laughs> like English 30 <laughs> response, but okay. <laughs> if we- if we, uh, I think we chatted about this on our on our couch yeah. chat, <clears throat> a couch text chat. As we talked about Elaine May, there's no doubt that a very intelligent person wrote this, and that the script is pretty gold. There is so much great intellectual humor in this, mm. but it's shot poorly, it's acted poorly, and there, as a movie, as a finished product. It's nearly unwatchable for me. I I don't hmm. mean to compare this with like Million Dollar Deck or anything, but I think I was upset at the waste of an opportunity. You know, when I hear some of the lines come out, I'm like, if that wasn't Walter Matthau playing that, or if Elaine May had chosen or been able, as we'll learn, to choose a different lead, she does not seem invested in uh, creating a separate character. There's something about her performance here that I just, I hate it. You know, and hmm. I don't think it's a uh, a testament to her talent. I just I have this feeling like she was almost laughing at the studio for being in it. She's she's almost sardonically smiling in every shot. There's something hmm. out of character in every moment she's in it. So this kept pulling me out. Um, and I also realized that I really don't like Walter Matthau. I think. He yeah, just I looks think, like uh, an awful person. Yeah. I think you're projecting a whole lot of stuff onto this movie that may or may not be there. Uh, I, To be fair, I have actually read that exact same criticism as far as the look of the movie. Mm. In fact, it might have been Pauline Kale. now that I think of about it. Anyway, there was, was actually a couple. I think there's a Me couple other. Like I know. You're like buddies. I think there was a couple other critics I read that said the same thing. For whatever reason, I just do not see it. I do not see the were like bad filmmaking on display or bad looking of this movie where I'm going to actually agree with you on this rewatch. I think that is my biggest criticism is Walter Matthau in this movie. I think he's miscast. I yes. don't think he should have been the one who was it a, because he's way older than Elaine may, but he is supposed to be playing this like rich, presumably good looking playboy. Like that is what the role kind of states in the script. And I do not, ever get that sense he is definitely spoiled and like out of touch with reality and i don't know if walter Matthau is able to pull that off did you you know what i got a vibe and i don't know if this was edited down but i feel like elaine may meant for the character to be a closeted gay man 
because all of his interactions, yeah. yeah, all of his interactions with women are uh, of revulsion. You know, it's not yeah, he like does he's not. He doesn't. No. His sex is not his motivator. He just wants money. He just wants to have money. Yeah, he's not fearing marriage like we saw with uh, yeah. the previous movie. It's not about carnal knowledge. Yeah, uh, it's about this guy who just doesn't want to take part in anything but himself, and that is. Uh, yeah, a character who's not just of a toxic masculinity, but a very unique, very unique character. Walter Matha does not pull it off. Yeah. And sorry, so there's two things that kind of bubble up from that. One is we mentioned last week with Mike Nichols uh, crossing paths with Walter Matthau because Mike Nichols directed the play version of The Odd Couple, which Walter Matthau was in. And they talk about them fighting, like the yelling at each other, because as that production went on, Matthew would basically just mug for the audience. And I feel that he does it a bit here to the camera. He makes these weird faces sometimes like, what are you doing? I don't get what you're doing. But more than that, I want to go broadly. So you say you don't like Walter Matthew, but what other movies have you watched? Of Walter Matthau. Oh no, I just meant in this film. Oh, I mean, so you don't I, like you don't hate Walter Matthau in total as a human being? No, uh, with the exception, I think that I will under under asterisk this is that as far as an actor has to use their personal energy to play a character in a film, he does asshole so convincingly in right. this movie that it's hard to watch, and it makes me suspect. That he's just an asshole, and I don't know. I've never met Walter. Yeah, I, I mean, he died a long I, time ago. But yeah, I, I can just watch. <laughs> I can just read some of the stuff that has been written about him after the fact. And to some people, he yeah, he could be a real big jerk and a no. bully in many cases. A man after my own colded heart. I do think that the script is like the best part of this film, and there are certain lines that kill me. There is something I remember. I think it was the review for There's Something About Mary, in fact, that Roger Ebert wrote that I've always internalized. This is his opinion. I would broaden it out a bit. He says, like, for a comedy to work, you need to have at least three belly laughs throughout the entire mm. runtime. I would maybe go a little bit more than that. I'd go maybe up to five. But I think that that concept holds. It's like you can we can wait for the laughs to come, but if you get like five like great laughs out of a movie, it's kind of done its job. And for me, that happens in this movie. Mm. There are certain sequences and lines that I did literally, not that we were watching this by ourselves, but if we were Dave, that I laughed out loud at that I thought like, gosh, that is such a really smart joke, or that's such a funny concept that, that is happening here right now. I think the other thing that drags this movie down, even though I'm, you're going to so roll your eyes of me, like <laughs> of, of the rating I'm going to give this movie. But uh, I think the third act is actually the biggest problem that this movie has. I think that's where it kind of stalls itself a little bit where I, I do think it's actually interesting to watch this character who has no desire for uh, responsibility, just wants to have money and be rich be basically forced to take on responsibility and to love somebody other than himself. Like that is basically the journey that this character is supposed to go through. Uh, but in the third one, I don't know. There's not as many good jokes in it anymore. It gets bogged down with like all like the staff that are, that are in part of it. If you can believe it though, Dave, like this was supposed to be three hours long. Oh my God. Did you read that? Yeah. There was a bunch of subplots that they removed completely off of this film after they kicked off Elaine May. So I don't know if that would have made it work better like i don't know I have, I have no idea i can't say that right or wrong but for me i think the pacing at the end feels off to me so for me it's like i like this movie but i don't love this movie and i always feel bad because 
during that blank check miniseries and through some of these reevaluations of like uh, Elaine May's career I've seen, like nowhere of lie, people consider a new leaf to be either the best comedy of the seventies or at the very least in the top 10 comedies Crazy. of the seventies completely. And I'm not there, but I don't think it's a bad movie either. I, I do enjoy this movie quite a bit. And it's probably something that I will return to in, in the future. Whether someone likes this or not, if any, if anybody wants a modicum of self-respect, they cannot put this as a top 10 comedy of the 70s. That's obscene. That, that's the <laughs> stupidest thing I've ever heard. I mean, as much as one can respect Elaine May and respect the script writing, this is not a good movie. You know, it's it's just it's just factually not a well, good movie. I don't movie. know if it's factually there, Dave. <laughs> we'll look at some of the other ratings people have given to this. You were kind of on the outside of this as far uh, as the general consensus. Yeah, I learned this is preserved, which is uh, fucking, uh, yeah, that's uh, egregious. But there has to be something more than that then. I mean, obviously, yes, you you, you can see that you don't like uh, Walter Matthau in this movie and the, and the filmmaking isn't there. But above that, it, you seem to be having a pretty strong negative reaction. There has to be more to it than that. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like you brought up, I think I, the writing kept me in it. So I didn't want to, it's not a million dollar deck. So I didn't want to turn it off. But I think to your point, at, like, so I add to what you're talking about at the end when it's devolving into a pseudo murder play. Yeah. I just gave up on it because I was like, Hey, they didn't even bring this into the, his conceptual thinking until halfway through. It felt like an afterthought. And then the way he obsesses over it, A, again, he plays it so poorly. And then for it to keep repeating itself in the most random places, I just, I couldn't even understand why it was in there. You didn't need it. it it's completely unnecessary for his uh, redemption, for, for him yeah. to be planning to murder her. And even in the last moment, I mean, how long does it take for her to go from drowning on the stump of wood to yeah. being in the pool while he has this existential realization by looking at a fucking plant? That was like a 20, not 20 minute, but that was like a five, six minute little montage of him, what, realizing he's immortalized by his own name and then running yeah. back into the, it's stupid. It's just a stupid, stupid, stupid thing. <laughs> I, I agree with you in the timing of it. In, in many ways, like we talked about Clint Eastwood here a few weeks ago, uh, called, no, sorry, Play Misty for me. And I think we, we commented in that about how you can tell that that was his first movie that he directed, yeah. right? Because there's some things, a mistake. Well, I don't even want to call them mistakes, but there's certain decisions. things that they focus yeah. on and decisions that he would never have made 15 years after that. And I think you can very much tell that is yes. similar here. Elaine had never directed anything. This is like never, no shorts, no television episodes. This is the very first thing that she came onto a set for and was the director. And as such, I think you can tell that there, that is where I think some of the pacing problems come off. Some of like the actual shot setups maybe are not like, I don't know. Yeah. Like among the best of all time for sure. And those things I think get rectified as her filmography goes on. But I guess what I'm saying here is like, you can tell that this is someone's first try. <laughs> Sure. Uh, to its detriment, I think, in, in many cases where it's like, ooh, this feels like a first film. And uh, there's no getting around it because it was her first film. I don't want to like I don't want to make excuses for that. But I think that there's reasons behind why some of the things do and do not work. She, her other hand was forced on other things here, too. So why don't we do this instead of talking around it? Let's delve into some of the backstory and then we'll talk about some more stuff here in A New Leaf. Because I want to get to some of my favorite lines that I think are <laughs> hilarious. Just so you both know. I think this podcast should end with your murders. So A New Leaf is released on March 11th, 1971. It is rated 
7.4 on IMDb. Wrong. Uh, No ratings on Metacritic currently. But on Rotten Tomatoes, it has 100% from 36 critics and an 83% from 1,000 plus users. I will put the asterisk there. That's pretty low as far as Rotten Tomatoes go, as far as how many users have rated this movie. You know what that is? That's an apologists and revisionists group trying to resurrect this. All right. All right. Well, it has more it has more positivity than Paddington 2, Dave. So what can I say? (laughs) What can I say? Uh, It is available on DVD. There's no Blu-ray copy of this movie, but you can buy or rent it on iTunes. And currently there's no way to stream it, at least not in Canada. Its budget was eventually $4 million. We'll come back to that in a moment. And it was going to make $5 million at the box office or $32 million with inflation. So this would have been looked at as a pretty big disappointment as far as like a amount of money it costs versus what it made. Uh, its plot description is Henry Graham lives the life of a playboy. When his lawyer tells him one day that his lifestyle has consumed all his funds, he needs an idea to avoid climbing down the social ladder. So he intends to marry a rich woman and dot 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 murder her. It stars Walter Matthau as Henry Graham, Elaine May as Henrietta Lowell, James Coco as Uncle Harry, and George Rose as Harold. Anything you want to say about those actors? Yeah, I've got a good story for you. The only thing I just realized, um, when you're talking about Andy Kaufman and modern uh, sort of comedy, apparently one thing about Walter Matthau is that when he was growing up, he was known as a practical joker. And one of the anecdotes about him is that nobody knew what... Like it sounds like he was a pathological liar, and that okay, his uh, personality was in sense performative. So he may potentially be sort of a proto Andy Kaufman. And there is some stories that uh, people around him who didn't like him mainly came from the fact they had no idea whether him being a jerk was an act, was actually him, was was something to get a laugh. Right. So apparently to the day of his death, that's something that he just was never, flipping. Yeah, yeah, never flipped the switch. Always had the switch flip. So uh, I did read about that. Whether I, you know, we can't verify that in any way, but it was uh, it was described a little bit in his uh, backstory. The, uh, the only thing about him is, I mean, he suffered a lot at the end. He had like double pneumonia. What the fuck is double pneumonia? Oh that's no, awful. that seems like double secret probation or something. <laughs> Uh, now, the story I want to talk to, about, talk to you about is George Rose. And I don't know how to say this quickly because we've already been talking for so long, but he plays the butler in this film. Yeah. He's apparently a pretty big uh, theater, theatrical actor he's from the UK, he makes it big on Broadway. But the really fucked up thing is he's tortured and murdered to death. Do you know what, about this? Well, what? No. Okay. What are you talking about? So, I'm just trying to think of what the quickest way. It's kind of this weird, not unsolved, but very uh, thing. I guess he's made a very big name for him, uh, himself on Broadway. He's got uh, decent sort of character roles in film. So he's a fairly prestigious uh, actor in the circles. But he's in America secretly gay, as we learned that you had to be. But he never took a trope, like a fake paper wife. And he always apparently liked to live, they say, dangerously. So he lived in a really rough part of Harlem. He had like a jungle cat in his apartment. Like he's just what? kind of a weird, he's kind of a weird guy. Where's the movie made out of this guy? Well, there may be a book. And so, uh, the really weird thing, and this is a bit death in Venice, is that he's making a lot of money and decides he's going to go to Dominican Republic and buy an estate. And if you don't know much about the Caribbean uh, culture, they are not very Uh, pro-LGBTQ. They have a very strong, vehement sort of anti 
uh, you know, pro, pro-Christian sort of uh, crazy shit going on there. So he gets this villa, this estate, and then at some point he befriends a 14-year-old boy who mm-hmm. eventually he adopts when he's 17. And okay. the idea on the surface is that, oh, he just wanted to pass his estate on to somebody. But that boy, his father, the uncle, and two other men murder this guy. And they don't just murder him. Uh, it turns out that they tortured him for eight hours before uh, like bludgeoning him to death and then faking his death with a car accident. And so the housekeeper, I found this whole article about it, is called by the police to identify the body and they realize the car's not in gear, the lights are not on, like it's total bullshit. But it's the Dominican Republic and they don't want to investigate him. After they're pushed to do so, because this guy is kind of a celebrity in the States, the five men uh, admit to it, they confess and they all go to jail. But the boy is 17 and so he actually comes out after a year or two. There's never a trial. Sorry, comes out in what Of jail. So he's... And so the story from the father is that, uh, what's his name? George, George Rose. George Rose. Moved to the Dominican Republic and was like this predator and was like uh, finding boys, grooming boys. So sorry, the 17 year old was coming and grooming uh, boys? No, George Rose, the actor. Oh. After he bought the okay. estate. Now that's what the boy's dad claims. So we don't know. Sure. You know, this is all hearsay. But that is the motivating story of why they... <laughs> tortured and murdered this guy, which is so boy, fucking oh crazy. What's really weird, which is kind of a sad part, is uh, when the boy comes out, he's actually signed in the will. So he's due the whole estate, even though yeah. he killed the guy. The lawyers in New York were like, this is outside our jurisdiction. And if we want to pursue it, because I think somebody, what do you call them? The executor, the executor is yeah. in America. So they're like, if we want to go there and and cut this kid out, I mean, we need a conviction. That's not going to happen because apparently Dominican, uh, the penal system, they don't actually go to trial. They just leave him jailed to to rot. We need all of these things and it costs too much money. So there's an undisclosed settlement. So this kid is making money off this murder and still living somewhere. And then the rest of the money went to some charity. So uh, yeah, that's a story I uncovered. Wild. That is so <laughs> wild. I want so. I want to know so much more about that. Oh my but, god! But uh, we don't have time to no, go into that. No, I spent too much time. But that's okay. That's well, a thing. Yeah. This is again a podcast about a light comedy <laughs> called The New Leaf. <laughs> we already had like three like terrible stories we've oh told about this god. show. Okay, this was written by Elaine May, based on the story The Green Heart by Jack Ritchie, and directed by Elaine May. So last episode, of course, we went through the whole like Nichols and May meeting up and, and their impact on culture. After they break up, she goes into playwriting. And I, I can I'm trying to be as nice as possible, but I have to be honest, like I don't know how successful she actually was. Because she wrote a bunch and I looked at them and I have not a single name recognition for any play that she has ever written. So I was like, I don't usually at least I have like, okay, I've heard of this. Mm. I've not even heard of any of these. So she decides then to segue into screenwriting and she decides to adapt Jack Ritchie's short story, The Green Heart. Jack Ritchie was a very prolific short story writer. Uh, and his stuff would appear a lot like Alfred Hitchcock magazine and, and those sorts of like either horror or mystery fiction. Uh, and from what I can gather, it's basically the same plot as this except it also does include that murder subplot of him going and killing multiple women on his <laughs> uh, oh, that's what like was cut, that's a, that's what was cut out of this movie right is that once he comes up it's like oh i need to go 
and uh, marry someone so I can get money. He does that a couple of times, but they don't have a lot of money. So he has to keep killing and killing and killing uh, as they go through, which ratchets up the tension because he finally actually falls in love with this with last, last person. One. Yeah. See, that's that's a story, Kyle. Now, yeah. that's a story. Well, maybe we should <laughs> see this three hour cut and see if it actually works. Anyway, she decides to adapt this there. By the way, just as a quick little segue or a side tangent, that story was also adapted into a Broadway play. Or into a play. I actually don't know if it was on Broadway. Where it was adapted into a play, but they changed it in that it was while uh, Henry Graham was already married to someone. So it's a couple going after people. Uh. May's original script includes him going out and murdering these couple of women. She has a script, shops it around, and Paramount is interested. You know, Nichols was a success here still. She's still considered a hot property. And then they decide that they're going to screw her over. This is me projecting again, editorializing. Just read what I printed out. This is what they come to her with. They say, like, we like your script. But if you make this movie, you have to have Walter Matthau in it. Without Walter Matthau, this movie does not get made. They also wanted to have then the woman be played by Carol Channing. That was who the other one was supposed to be. Which, when I think about it, is like, that would have worked. Like, I can see Carol Channing being in this role. but. Elaine May's point was that you can't make this movie with Carol Channing because this is about him. It's a movie about this man and his journey, and she's too charismatic and will steal every scene and make it be about her. Like, you have to have this woman come in and basically fade away and only come back every so often. So they gave her an ultimatum and said, well, you either then get to make this movie with Carol Channing or you get to be the woman. Those are your two choices. Pick whichever one you want to go with. So she kind of under duress becomes the actress in this movie because she doesn't really want to be in front of the camera. She's kind of she just doesn't want to do that. They then pay her fifty thousand dollars for this fifty thousand dollars for both writing and starring in the movie, which is so pitifully small, even in 1971 standards. Her agent cuts a deal, apparently, but still, uh, but I think it's more for him. They, he cuts this deal so that she can direct it as well, but still paid only $50,000. So she does three things on this movie. She writes, she stars, and she directs it, and is paid fifty grand for it. It's like crazy. It is kind of almost criminal to be paid so little for the three jobs well, she's doing. I think it doing. is criminal, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyways, she's like, whatever, I'll take this deal. It lets me make my first movie. And then what transpired is this very lengthy fight. The movie ran 40 days over time, $2 million over budget. So it was supposed to originally be about $2 million. It balloons up to four. She then delivers to Paramount a three-hour movie. And they're like, we can in no way release a three-hour movie <laughs> that is this comedy. So they kick her off and they send someone in to recut it, them, to, a new editor to come in and recut it. However... May had final cut in her contract. Like she had it written in her contract. She gets to say final cut. So she sues Paramount and prevents them from releasing it. And that goes to arbitration and she loses that case. Uh, maybe she wasn't able to pay high enough lawyers. That's Because if it was in the contract, you would think that they would have to adhere to the contract. But apparently no. they, they win that. She is a so woman. She, so they so, she, probably so not she a loses, fair trial. Yep. She loses that. And then she says, fine, we'll release this. But take my name off the movie. I don't want my name to show up on the movie at all. And she loses that one as well. (laughs) So this movie was actually supposed to come out. I don't know if it was like early 1970 or late 1969. But it takes all this time before it's eventually released here in like March of 1971. 
there's some wild stories. Like she hid like film prints underneath her bed to like prevent them from even trying to cut something out of it. And like, so there was all this stuff as of today, there's no consensus on whether that three hour cut even exists anymore. Like if she has a copy or someone else has a copy, but this would actually become a very, there would become a recurring thing. She also sued the, the production company on Mikey and Nikki. Uh, and she had a huge falling out over uh, Ishtar and how that was handled as well. So it's a common thing with Elaine May. So that that's basically the backstory of this movie. She would go on, like I was mentioning before, to do other stuff, uh, directing, but also ghostwriting a lot of things. So she helped write a lot of the scenes in Tootsie. She did uh, Reds for uh, Warren Beatty. Um, she was nominated for an Oscar for Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty. Uh, what is the film? There's a film that I find like hilarious that she actually ghost wrote. Dangerous Minds. That's what it is. Yeah. So Dangerous Minds is the one that she also helped to ghost write. So that's the backstory. I, I did read, again, these are anecdotal references that she also was not that easy to get along with because she is. Yes. I, yeah. And I agree with that. I think here's the thing, though. Again, this is going to sound so apologist, but we take a look at people like Stanley Kubrick and like, oh, they're such a genius. And they do like 17 or no, like 49 takes of the same scene and they go over budget, but they uphold their artistic vision. And for Elaine May, it was always like she's a bitch and she doesn't know. Sure. She always goes over time and makes and takes more money out of the the production. Yeah. So and I don't think you can have both of those things at the same time. No, you know, they yeah. have to be both the same in either way. Yeah, I didn't mean to put that up as a victim blaming statement. I yeah. just think that yeah, it, when something is consistent, <laughs> yes. there are two sides to the story. Yeah, I just read that she's very uncompromising, but um she was. Like again, there are scenes I really do encourage people to watch Mikey and Nikki on Criterion Channel because it uh you can you you can tell. Like you read the backstory there, like, yep, they filmed this scene nineteen times until they got it right. Because she and there was like to the to to the degree of like she had them like pave a road because like no it has to be a paved road that they're walking on so pave it anyways that's the, that's not the move we're talking about Dave I want to talk to you about some of these lines that I find hilarious just give me a belly Anything? laugh I need one this, this is this episode so depressing I think this is pretty puff of the course you don't happen to be part of the Boston Hitlers do you <laughs> uh, are you sorry you're not part of the Boston Hitlers are you. Um, I just like that. <laughs> just like what was the other one? Heimlich? Um, something like that. So there's another Nazi one. They're yeah. talking about like the fact that there's a bunch of Nazis in high society, yeah, that, yeah. and some of them aren't even hiding it all that well. I am a man, and you are a woman. We don't have to let that interfere if we are reasonably careful. I love the line, and this is like the one time that I think Walter Matthau actually gives a good delivery of the line, which is uh, when he's proposing to her and he's kneeling on the broken glass, and he says. Leaning on glass is my favorite pastime. It prevents me from slouching. There's those scenes. I love that scene with his financial advisor. Mm -hmm. It's like, yep. I need you to cash this check. It's like, well, you have no money. Do you understand that you have no money? Yes. Can you please cash this check? Okay, so you don't understand that you don't have any money. Again, I think you could take that scene, put it into a modern film, and people would still laugh sure. at it because that situation is so funny. I think when he does realize, finally internalize that he is poor and doesn't have any money left, him walking around to all those establishments, like lightly caressing like the overhang and going like, I'm just looking at that one more time. Like him just like being a sad sack as he's wandering around. Uh, George, is it George Rose? Is that the guy's the butler. name? The butler's line delivery of like his like, 
going on this long thing is like, oh, and by the way, I'm giving you my two weeks yeah, notice. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, still tell, butlering. Yeah, yeah. Still butlering and stuff like that. Like all that stuff just works for me. And I don't know. Like those are the things that, again, comedy is so hard to try and, and uh, convince another person <laughs> that it's good. But in my eyes, all this stuff is working. I will say what I do agree with you again on is the first time I remember watching this, it took me a while to get into the tone of the movie mm. where, you know, you see Walter Matthau and it's like, you know, being sad about his car that's like trying to get worked on. And there's that. And he's wearing that weird hat and he's riding a horse and he's in a helicopter and he's like, they're going through a bunch of these scenes like super, super quickly. And I was like, I was kept getting thrown off a little bit because it's like, okay, is this like, supposed to be slapstick funny going mm. on here is this going to only be lightly funny math is not giving me a lot to work with here so I, I i remember the first time watching it being thrown and being like i don't i don't understand where we're at here and then i slowly kind of got into the groove a little bit you know i think uh, i think that when you watch a movie of this nature you're imagining what it could have been on a stage i and agree I th- and I, I think, think this might this, even work better as a play, to yes, be honest. If it was three hours and this was on a stage, this thing would be gold. A, because you could kick Walter Matha out. <laughs> and B, because all those guys, like when, uh, what was the the little bit that they had to lose? Uh, carbon on the headers or whatever, you know? Right. And they keep, that is something that would play very well in a theater because you could just cut all the scenes. When he's saying goodbye and touching all things, that could be one set yeah, and you could yeah. just have the light. Cutting it, and you're right, this is her first movie, and it is somewhat unfair to criticize how, for example, that montage is cut together, but it has been cut together the way that it is, and it sucked. And I I did appreciate, like I said, the writing's there, you know, the jokes are there, there's just something, there's something missing, and for me, it became worse because I saw the potential, as I said at the beginning, you know, I, I hear the lines, like even when... He makes a quips about the hip Hitlers and the, mm-hmm. fuck, I don't remember which other uh, famous Nazi was in it. My brain's like, oh, that that could be really funny. And then my body's <laughs> like, but it wasn't. It. Yeah. So I, it's nothing against, in my mind, Elaine May, the writer or the source material. And now you're bringing up that this could have been even a comedy about uh, not a, what what's that bird? that lays eggs, but you know, there's somebody that's mm. climbing the ladder through murder and through uh, things. You know, it's interesting. I, I think something bird, like that, yeah. that might've worked really well, but yeah, um, I, eh. yeah, I, I agree. I, 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 there's things that don't work for me. I think overall, uh, I'm more of a fan of it, that more of it works for me than it doesn't. I'm also struck by it. I know I always have to bring this back to like musical theater stories, but there was an interview I watched of Stephen Sondheim and he mentioned this fact. He's like, oh, I actually do this too. And I think it's becoming more and more apparent as we go through 1971 of how much I can suspend my disbelief very quickly. Mm. I am like the best audience member because from the first frame, like, okay, this is what we're doing. And I can just accept that. And it takes a lot for me to be pulled completely out of the movie. It can happen. But for the most part, it's like, oh, whatever you're giving to me is fine. Okay, that's what we're doing. That's the that's the look of this movie. That's the feel of this movie. This is the tone of this movie. I'm I'm here for the ride. And I feel like that might be more, opposite. well, not just opposite, but maybe more unique than I might think. I think it might take, I might be the person, the weird one in this situation where it, uh, a lot of people don't suspend their disbelief very quickly. I don't know. I don't think it's weird. I think I suspect listening to you talk about it the people that grow up in the theater 
or love the theater would be more inclined to be like you. Because when you go to a stage production, you know, whether they have a low or a high budget, the moment you sit down, you are already physically engaged in said experience, whatever your expectations are. And so if you go too visually critically to a stage play, you're going to be fucked no matter what, because it's very hard to represent reality in a finite uh, space. For me, growing up with movies more than live productions, my approach is the opposite of yours, which is that I demand a director or a director of photography or cinematographer to frame it for me so that I understand what I'm supposed to be doing. And all of the movies that are aesthetically pleasing to me are these masters, so-called. You know, if you watch a science fiction movie, you walk in and you're like, well, this is clearly <laughs> 3,040 whatever, yeah, or yeah. this is clearly a post-apocalyptic thing because they've done this with the air, with the tone, with the grid, whatever, with the, uh, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, movies of the 70s where this is, I'm going to say less evolved, not so much in a diminu uh, in a insulting manner, but just uh, it was, you know, 50 years ago or 60 years ago now. You know, I think 20 years ago, I was very much more forgiving of 70s films. But now that I'm revisiting them, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm having a hard tr time this year as we have well, discovered. I, I, I'm actually more curious if the late 70s, you'd have the same problem because the 70s is, no, most, is usually considered the best decade of American filmmaking. In general, in, in total and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm, you know, maybe took I took more chances. Things were made for adults. They weren't made for teenagers and kids primarily. Yeah, but like, this there is, was... I, this is a critic's opinion. And I, I think that from a user, I think we're called users now, human beings. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> content, content consumers. consumers. Yes. Yeah. I'm getting too coded to sort of modern cinematic quality and things like, Spielberg, like, you know, Ridley Scott, like some of the bigger 80s and 90s directors, they have a, for me, a transcendent style, but it will be interesting, like with Emerson, with my son, if he thinks that Jurassic Park looks like a piece of shit when he's right. 15, I still think it holds up and I think it looks incredible. Blade Runner, same thing. When you open that up, it doesn't matter who shot in 1984, that thing looks clean. I'm just trying to think of 70s movies, like Star Wars still looks great, but they've remastered yeah. so many times if they still had the cutout squares around the TIE Fighters. Maybe I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard to tell yeah. how much I'm willing to give. But beyond that, beyond like, just to your point, I, I did not feel that about this film. You know, from mm -hmm. the get-go, him showing up in the overly small racing helmet to drive his piece of crap Ferrari, yeah. I, I could not understand what to expect. And then because Walter Matthau plays this really weird... Like he's, just, I don't know. There's something about the way he plays this character. I, 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 I can understand. Yeah. It, it's hard because I agree with Walter Matthau's performance, and at the same time, I do understand the fact that because this is a comedy, everyone is kind of either caricatured lampooned. or dialed up to eleven yeah. and being lampooned. Because to bring out a modern example, like if you do look at the Hot Rod or the pop star examples, like none of them are really playing quote unquote, like real people. They're playing like those characters, but again, dialed up to such an, a grotesque degree that that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. Maybe it's, and, and, and this is a personal thing, but I wonder if it's about being self-aware of how silly and weird they look. You know, we brought up Ace Ventura, you know, so Jim Carrey, when he is not being a rubber face, although lately, I mean, he just yeah. looks gaunt, but 
you know, when he was young, he could also do the Clint Eastwood face and he could also be yeah. kind of good looking. There's something about Walter Matthau at this stage of his life that I just, I don't know. I just didn't even understand he was trying to be silly about it. He just looked smug. I can understand from the way we're describing this character that maybe that's supposed to be good, but I didn't, I didn't get into it. I just, I couldn't. And then uh, not to let her off the hook, as soon as Elaine May appears in this film, I really didn't like her at all. I, I, she, I mean, she is clearly miscast, but yeah, you know, so I think mis- well, she's in, too attractive intention- to be mousy. She's yeah. like smiling, intentionally like underwritten as well. Like she's a very underwritten character. There's not much that she's given to do. Yeah, so I, um, I don't know, especially for her true. talents. Like Elaine May should be playing a sophisticate, but right. like, or biting. she's going to play silly, yeah. like have a scene where she's actually playing up. Instead, she's this mouse. Mm-hmm. This uh, she's not even in the film. It's it's awful. Did you take a look at the movie poster? For this movie at all? Uh, no. Okay. Well, if I'm going to read it to you because if it doesn't have the longest tagline of all time, <laughs> then I'd be surprised. Like, I can't think of anything that would be longer than this. So, this is the actual tagline on the movie poster. It takes about half of the entire movie poster Romeo and Juliet, Bob and Bing, Leopold and Loeb, Heloise and Abelard, Ulysses and Grant. George and Martha, Martha and John, Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, Bob and Alice, Ted and Carol, Bob and Ted, Carol and Alice, Popeye and Olive Oil, Maggie and Jiggs, Pat and Dick, Julie and David, Yoko and John, John and Mary, Byron and his sister, Bonnie and Clyde, Tarzan and Jane, Bill and Coo, Nip and Tuck, Henry VIII and Anne and Jane and Catherine and Catherine and Catherine, John and Priscilla, Liz and Eddie, Liz and Mike, Liz and Dick, Dick and Sybil, Sybil and Jordan, Eddie and Debbie, Thick and Thin, Muck and Meyer, Frick and Frack, David and Goliath, Mogan and David, Frankie and Johnny, Mama and Mia, Hollywood and Vine, Anthony and Cleopatra, and now Henry and Henrietta, the love couple of the 70s, and the laugh riot of the year. That's a great tagline. Try and say that in one breath. The thing I just wanted to make, like there's a lot of like historical allusions that are going on in, inside there and like Hollywood relationships. Bill and Coo, does that ring a bell at all? No. That is the movie where the guy who helped to write Dirty Harry and play Misty for me when he was back in like the whatever 50s or 60s had birds dress up as people oh. and act the entire movie out that's what bill and coo is i'm like that is such a deep cut to put onto your movie poster anyway so this proves again that may was pretty knowledgeable about i was gonna stuff. say when you read that i'm like that had to have been written by elaine may because that's it's just smartly written and as you're you did a great job kyle but as yeah. you're reading it that uh you know i was like snapping my fingers great rhythm yeah. hilarious and uh there we yeah. go. I wish the All movie right. had been that way. <laughs> we are done here. All right. The machine has said that we do have to wrap this up. So let's get to critics choice. The recurring theme that's going to happen. Ebert loved this. Gave it four out of four. And this is what he says. Their courtship involves finding out that each other's tastes. He savors rare French vintages, for example. And she likes Mogan, David and soda with a drop of lime juice and so on. For the wedding night, she dons a Grecian gown. Uh, actually, another funny scene that I liked. Inadvertently sticking her head through the armhole. He attempts to readjust her and she struggles with the gown for about two minutes. You hear more laughter than I've heard in any theater since the producers in 1968, which is my yardstick for these matters. A New Leaf is, in fact, one of the funniest movies of our unfunny age. Miss May is reportedly dissatisfied with the present version. Newspaper reports indicate that her original cut was an hour longer and included two murders. Mathau, who likes this version better than the original, has suggested that writer-director stars should be willing to let someone else have a hand in the editing. Maybe so. Wow. I'm generally prejudiced in favor of the director in these disputes. Whatever the merits of Miss May's case, however, the movie is, in its present form, hilarious, cockeyed, and warm. 
Awful. Well, he said that audience of the time were laughing it up, Dave. So who is the real? He's uh, uh, incorrect. Yeah. He has something. Cut. Get the cotton out of your ears. All right. Let's, All right. let's move on. <laughs> Here's what Pauline Kale had to say. She says, Elaine May adapted and directed this harmlessly doddering comedy about an aristocratic American playboy, Walter Matthau. She, she puts it in oh, as a question mark. Uh, who must marry a fortune in six weeks and find a rich botanist. It's an unusually ugly looking movie, and one can't be sure that much of anything in it was intended. But there is a sweetness about its absence of style and about its shapeless, limp comic scenes. So she didn't outright hate it, but she was not like, she didn't glow in her response either. It's, it's weird. She didn't hear the riotous laughter in her viewing? Huh. It's weird. <laughs> Whatever. Pauline Kale was so <laughs> mad about everything in her life. She was still like upset that Clint Eastwood said something about her in the press two weeks ago that she was seething as she sat down to watch this version, to watch this movie. Does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Those are no. the two questions we asked each week. Yeah, no. I, it doesn't hold up for me and uh, it is not culturally, re culturally relevant. There's not a lot of redeeming cultural. So here statement. is where. Here's where I maybe will surprise you. I half agree. I also don't think that it is culturally relevant, mostly because you look at the number of reviews, even on IMDb, it's like 5,000 people have rated this movie. Letterboxd has actually a lot more. I think it's like 11,000 or something like that, but still like kind of low in the grand scheme of things. This movie is not something that people are watching. Um, it is definitely getting a reappraisal uh, and, and maybe it's becoming more popular. And I, I personally think people should check this out just to see it, but I cannot in good faith say that, yeah, this is so cult this is so um, culturally relevant anymore. For me, it does hold up. It makes me laugh enough for me to be like, I, I can still return to this and, and get something out of it. He, he does own it. So that's... I do own the movie. That is true. <laughs> So that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave VS the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something that you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie and you're going to make a lot of people mad, Dave. So I'm going to make people mad. Just wait till they try to see it because of your recommendation. Sure. We'll what get is some it, what, hate mail. What do you give this out of five? I don't know. It's a tough one. The only thing that's buoying this number is that it's <laughs> okay. written well, you know, and yeah. the rest of it, yeah, is a trash heap. That being said though, you know, learning some of the backstory that she didn't even want to be in this film. So I have to kind of put that into account of her performance in it um mm -hmm. you know i might go up as high as a two you know i'm okay with the two yeah okay give me a two i feel okay two feels um good. like i said i i like this movie i do not love this movie so it's not going to reach up into like the four plus <laughs> category but it almost gets there honestly dave if i could do quarter ratings i would because honestly the rating i want to give this is 3.25 is, mm. is the rating i want to give to it yeah i i am actually really rounding up just to counteract your negativity so <laughs> I, I i am going to give this a 3.5 that's, that's your 0.25 all right 
Uh, which averages to 2.75, which means... Oh, interesting. So it's tying with Sunday Bloody Sunday. Do you think this is better or worse than Sunday Bloody mm. Sunday? You know what? After we recorded that episode, just like you brought up, I've mm. actually thought of Sunday Bloody Sunday I know. It's weird, huh? Yeah. Like, I, I keep going back like, man, maybe that was better than I was thinking it was. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. me this entire year. I mean, it's not like I'm going to rescind every score, but there's a couple where I, I'm coming back and thinking about them a lot. Um, I think Sunday Bloody Sunday is a better film. Uh, yeah. top to bottom in this thing with the exception of a stupid fourth wall break to ruin yeah. the movie at the end but i i agree with that i yeah I, I think i agree overall i think sunday by sunday is a stronger film yeah uh so yeah i i, I i'm we're gonna do that so that means that this movie is entering into our list at the number 10 position mm. but we'll probably drop down it's no willy wonka right dave oh, it's no God. willy wonka <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all That's right. got to be well, our biggest divide. Everyone can tell you hate each other. Well, let's see what we're going to be watching next week, Dave. I'm just going to push this little button here. Oh, well, it's interesting. This is actually fascinating on two levels. One, we're going to be continuing with Walter Matthau. So we'll see another Walter Matthau performance. Gross. But this is going to also be a Neil Simon production, which is Ooh. what Mike Nichols got famous for, was directing... Neil Simon Productions on stage. So we're going to be watching Plaza Suite. That's what we're going to be watching next is Plaza Suite. Okay. Then why does that sound familiar? All right. I I'm definitely haven't seen it, but that name sounds familiar for some reason. Maybe yeah, I've I have stayed at one. <laughs> Maybe you have. Maybe you have. Uh, all right. Well, I don't know. Do you want to um, finish this episode some way? <laughs> I was going <laughs> to try to think of a reference I could use from the movie. Uh, oh, um, you know, Kyle, I, I think you've put your head in the wrong hole there. Oh, my God. Yeah, my head and armor up through the one hole here. You, I, I've been doing this the whole time? You didn't say anything? Well, you know, the, the two holes do kind of look the same, so. You're just one hole the entire time, Dave. Just so you both know, I think this podcast should end with your murders.